Our topic tonight is is an important one. I think it's very important that uh, we reflect back from time to time on our heritage, and of course that's why we we have a series of studies uh, such as this, because in the absence of doing that, there's a very real danger, and we will look into some of that danger as we kind of review some of the events and so forth. You see the picture on the screen there of uh, the old mission there at, at Azusa Street and and humble beginnings, but a, a tremendous uh, worldwide result of what occurred there in a very short period of time. Certainly the heritage of, of our organization and many of our own uh, personal heritages entwined in that what happened there. Uh, so it's, it is a very important topic. It was interesting to me, the, um, it seems like the first verse that came to my mind when I was given this assignment, it appears a couple of times in the Gospels, Jesus was foretelling to his disciples the uh, persecution and the hostility and so forth to anticipate in the last days and had words of instruction the way it's recorded in Mark chapter 13 verse 11 said, but when they lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what ye shall speak, neither do ye premeditate, but whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye, for it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Interesting that that came to me. I was uh, quite confident there would be a much less hostile audience tonight than Jesus was referring to, so I felt it was okay for me to take thought what I might say, and I took thought, and I took thought, and I took thought, and I came to the conclusion that I was very thankful when the audience is not as compassionate for this promise that the Holy Ghost uh, would step in and come up with something far more compelling than my thoughts. It's a wonderful promise. It's a sobering reality. The Lord himself said that that would occur. But that's a promise of one of many aspects, one of many uh, workings that the Holy Ghost, God the Holy Ghost, will do for his children and how thankful we are for that. The Holy Ghost, the working of the Holy Ghost, of course, is, is very central to this topic because it was that outpouring uh, that occurred in such a significant uh, measure there at Azusa Street. When, our, when these lessons are compiled, of course, our editorial staff uh, selects an applicable verse, a key verse that's applicable to the topic. And, and in this case, Psalm 105.5, remember his marvelous works that he hath done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. I saw in that a key word and a key qualifier. I think we would all select the first word, remember, as a key word. The Bible states that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, and, and truly we are, and, and it's remarkable as medical science has explores uh, the wonders of the human body, how fearfully and wonderfully made we are, and uh, among that very significantly, of course, is the human mind. We have 
a remarkable capacity to remember from the time a newborn infant enters the world, immediately God-given senses start gathering sensations and information, and it gets filed away in that little brain. The lights, the sounds, the touch, the smells, all new sensations to that new little infant, but they start being recorded and recorded and continue through life. That process occurs and very remarkably can be retrieved. Uh, Sometimes the most um, innocuous sensation might bring back a memory. I had an experience that that really kind of intrigued me uh, back this summer. I think it might have been early in the summer. Kathy and I were walking, just taking a walk in a residential neighborhood in Milwaukee area. And um, as we just kind of walked by one house, I got just a little whiff of an odor that reminded me of my Grandma Maxwell's cabin uh, up in the Olympic Mountains. Hadn't even thought of that place in decades, really. What I couldn't describe the odor to you, just a little whiff. I don't know, some combination of a little bit of mildew and wood and fabric or whatever, but I thought of that that little cabin and, of course, childhood memories. I haven't been there in 50-plus years. It's probably long gone, I suppose. And I commented to, to Kathy. I said, that's weird. I said, I just got a little odor, a little smell, I said, it reminded me of Grandma's cabin. And isn't that remarkable how our mind will file things away like that and and a little sensation? I discovered in preparing for this uh, presentation that that would be classed as a a non-declarative memory. I learned that there are two basic categories of memory, declarative and non-declarative, um, that would be a non-declarative memory. And a couple examples they gave would be of non-declarative memory would be riding a bicycle. They say once you learn how to ride a bicycle, you never forget those feelings and those sensations transmitted to your muscles and so forth uh, to ride a bicycle. Once it's there, and you do learn to ride a bicycle, most people, you don't automatically. It's, there's a little learning process there, but once it's learned, they say you never forget. And I, I suppose there's some truth to that. There, they mentioned uh, another example, be salivating. Now, you might think you would not need to learn to do that, but we uh, develop uh, a certain favoritism for certain foods. Uh, and uh, uh, just a smell maybe even a picture, will cause that involuntary response. It's a memory, and many foods we, we learn to like. I, they speak of acquired tastes. I, I remember the first time I tasted coffee, I said nobody could truthfully say they liked that taste. That is a terrible taste, but I like coffee. <laughs> I learned to like it, and uh, perhaps many of you have, and that aroma is all it takes. You want a cup of coffee. So non-declarative memory. Declarative memory are the things that we 
memorize the things that we learn uh, very much what we learn in school and and one fairly significant difference is that declarative memory is more easily forgotten more easily lost whereas the non-declarative just like that sensation I had of, of that smell uh, is long lasting so things that we learn we may set our mind to and and I thought of flashcards. Now, many of us remember flashcards, but our kids and our grandkids have no idea who we're talking about. Some of us even remember what seven times eight is. That was kind of a tough one for me. But what was that all about? That was learning a, a, a mechanism to learn to commit something to memory in hopes that we would retain it. So... That endeavor is is very necessary in in retaining uh, that information. I said it's important that we remember our heritage, and uh, that brings us to the question: What what to remember? I mentioned I saw a key qualifier in that verse, and really the rest of the word the verse is that qualifier. That verse said, remember his marvelous works that he hath done, his wonders, and the judgments of his mouth. Actually, three categories there, all about God, important to remember, what to remember. There were instructed three categories of of God's benefits to remember. But it's interesting when you think of what to remember, what we commit to memory, we prioritize something we think is very important to remember. And so in so doing, we must realize there are things that are not important to remember, things we should not remember. And it's more than just an intellectual uh, necessity or expedience because we're in a spiritual battle. Satan does not want us to remember God's marvelous works that he has done, his wonders, the judgments of his mouth. But Satan does like us to remember. There are any number of things that Satan would love for us to remember, things that God has thrown into his sea of forgetfulness. We don't have that capacity that God does because they're completely gone. But Satan would love for us to remember those things that are harmful, those things that are damaging, but he would like us to not remember the judgments of his mouth, of God's mouth, his wonders, uh, the marvelous works he's done. So we have to discriminate. We have to uh, apply ourselves in declarative memory to choose what to remember. We've all confronted that. I confronted it as a young man when I just started in construction work. Um, For a time, I was exposed to an environment where I was hearing things that I didn't need to hear, I didn't want to hear, but I couldn't extract myself from that environment. It was my employment, and I was going to hear them. And the Lord actually gave me a great idea 
There was not a 30 or 40 or 50-year-old head on these young shoulders, but God gave me the idea to pray and ask for a forgetter. And I did that. And I was amazed at how God answered that prayer. I, I wanted those things I knew I'd hear to just go in one ear and out the other, as the expression goes. And the Lord made a noticeable difference in, in helping that be accomplished for me. Now it's, of course, getting increasingly difficult to get anything in one ear, and it's still very easy to get it out the other ear. And so I'm confronting that. But God answered that prayer because even at that point in time, uh, I realized that that was crucial for my spiritual welfare, and, and God assisted in that and will assist. Paul the Apostle recognized that, and certainly Paul was uh, gifted with wisdom and intellect. And if I got my mark in the right spot, we're familiar with the, this verse in Philippians 3.13. He said, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul, of course, could re- remember standing at when Stephen was stoned, when they cast the garments there at his feet. Paul could remember his vile intentions against Christianity. And... Satan, of course, would have loved for him to dwell on that and uh, grapple with that and struggle with that. But Paul recognized the folly in that and said, I have to forget those things are behind. I can't change that. Um, and what a, uh, a wise understanding that was. And gave a proactive tip in doing it, we heard this uh, Tuesday night. Brother Roth mentioned uh, Philippians 4.8. Here's a proactive way of dispelling the things we should forget and remembering the things we should. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. There's a big spectrum that we can think on, uh, a proactive approach at banishing the things that Satan would have us remember. Um, So it's a tip. Uh, So how to do this, that is a very useful tip. We all use various devices to try to remember things. We've heard of them. Uh, Some ideas work for some people. Some work for somebody else. Um, Very common one, write it down. We hear that admonition, write it down. And um, maybe some of us guys hear that when we're sent to the grocery store and, ah, don't need to write it down, got it right here. Oh, who can't remember three things? You know, oh, get ketchup too. Okay, four things. Well, you know what happens. We get to the store. Let's see, what was the first two things? So write it down. Um, That's not new, is it? In Deuteronomy, 
God instructed the children of Israel on a lot of the admonition that we use today comes from right there. Deuteronomy 6.9 said, Thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. They actually still do that. Write it down where you're going to see it to remind you. Why? Because it's important. Uh, the memory will slip away. Declarative memory. It doesn't last very long. And we need devices to do it. So there's a device given in God's word how to remember these things that are important. Rehearse orally. Deuteronomy 6-7. Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thy house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, when thou risest up. When? All the time. Talk about them. Rehearse it orally. And that's what we our endeavor tonight, rehearse orally our heritage, if I get to it. <laughs> but as I considered uh, this aspect of it, um, it, it does take endeavor or it will be lost. Another, another device, which is very common, and actually we see it up here on the screen, and that is a tangible memorial. On the screen there, you see kind of then and now pictures of Azusa Street. Of course, the old building there on the left, which is long gone, but on the right, there's, there's a street sign, and then there's a plaque embedded in the plaza there that have been placed there as a memorial, as a reminder, uh, a visual reminder for people that may happen by, and of course, people intentionally come to to rehearse, to remember, uh, to visit that memorial. There's actually been ongoing efforts, I think for over a decade now, I read that to try to enhance that, that effort there. Uh, there's kind of a long blank wall in that plaza, and I suppose it's marked with graffiti routinely or whatever, but they would like to have, have um, made some murals and some artwork with some various uh, pictorial representations of uh, the Azusa revival. And, and so far, I've not been able to accomplish that, but a visual, a, a memorial to, to help remember. Our, our text verses from Joshua relates that type of a, an endeavor, and I won't read them all, but the setting... Uh, it's in the fourth chapter, the beginning of the fourth chapter of Joshua, and perhaps you already read it. The setting is when the children of Israel had crossed over the Jordan River. The Lord had rolled back the waters, and they crossed over on, on dry ground. And Joshua instructed one man from each of the tribes to go gather a stone from the bed of the river and take it out and erect a memorial uh, on the riverbank, and we mentioned what, and and Joshua declared what. He said that this may be a sign among you that when your children ask your fathers in time come, saying, What mean ye by these stones? Ye shall answer them that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over Jordan. The waters uh, of Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. A, a visual memorial that people would come and say, what's this? Perhaps people have 
walk down Azusa Street and what's this? Never perhaps have, having heard of it before, but they, they read what was encountered. Uh, the memorial that Joshua uh, erected there was for a purpose. He said, when your children ask you, what's the meaning of this, this monument? You tell them God's wonderful works that he performed. Always been interesting to me. Uh, the last verse uh, of our, uh, or actually verse 9, Joshua, uh, and Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of Jordan in the place where the feet of the priest which bear the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they are there unto this day. I've always found that remarkable. Rivers do a very successful job of moving rocks around. In fact, in when we had our 1996 flood, uh, someone observed on the Sandy River a bulldozer being swept down in the Sandy River. Uh, that's the power of water. But it doesn't say that the memorial that they erected on the riverbank is there until this day, but the memorial erected in the riverbed is there to this day. And I've wondered, a memorial is a visual reminder. Who is that for? The only record of anyone we know that crossed the Jordan River on dry ground, and they were also heading toward Jericho, was Elias and Elijah. And I've, I've often wondered... Did they cross at the same spot? Did they stop at a memorial and say, remember the works, uh, his marvelous works that he had done? Who knows? But for some reason, a memorial was set up down there in the middle of the Jordan River. A device, a mechanism to help us remember. Many of us are interested in memorabilia. Now, the young folks over there across the street, not so much. But as we get a little bit older, we start becoming a little bit more interested in that. And, and from time to time, a lot of times at the end of camp meeting, they would announce they're going to have a sale of maybe some of the things that are not used around our organization. And people are interested in, in securing different ones that may have meaning to them, a tangible object. You can touch and feel, and it's a reminder uh, of something that is perhaps specific to you. I've got a couple. I'm not a big gleaner of memorabilia, but um, someone gave me one of the boxes of music that they used to use that the orchestra would have, and they would have loose sheets in this little cabinet in front of each by each music stand, and when they got the number uh, indicated to, they they would select that one out of this little cabinet, and someone gave me one of those little cabinets with all those music. I, I, I find it interesting. I, I looked through many of those. In fact, I've kind of looked through sometimes for, you know, something that might be an old song, perhaps one I'm not familiar with, but I think somebody may be, when we've maybe selected a, a, a brass prelude or something like that. So I found that intriguing, but I don't have any direct connection to that. It precedes my involvement in the music. But, oh, a year or so ago, 
I was reflecting how the choir used to sing out of a, a black binder. We called it the black book. Now there was one called the black book far earlier that the, the audience sang out of, but this black binder that the choir sang out of, uh, I thought about that, and we, we've retired those. We have a, a wealth of good music to choose from now. And I asked Janice, I said, are any of those still around that I could borrow one? I'd just like to look through one. And she found one for me and gave it to me. She said, you can have it. And I, and I appreciated that. I took it home that night, and I went through every song and looked at each one. Several of them, of course, I didn't, I wasn't familiar with, but the majority of them I was. Read through them. Words of life. They weren't presented as masterpieces of music composition, but words of life. Words that I had sung I was familiar with. I could hear the melody in my mind, uh, you know, as I looked through those songs. So that has meaning to me. A connection, my heritage, so another device to remember and important. Music is uh, a very useful way to, to memorize, to, to commit things to memory. Some of you probably memorize the books of the Bible by putting it to a tune. I never quite got it, but it's, it's a very useful technique. Uh, we sing, I, I mentioned how uh, looking through those those songs, and, and we sing songs that are Scripture. Uh, Ephesians 5.19 says, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Very useful in, in committing to memory and rec- uh, the things of God, the great things He's done. Those words of scripture that are put to music. No doubt some of you, when you read them, the melody comes to mind. I was guilty when uh, our boys were young and we had family devotions from time to time of uh, introducing a little melody when I was reading the, the family devotions. And I, how can you read the trees of the field shall clap their hands without including some melody? It was always cut short with uh, loud protests but some of you know what I mean. You read the words that you've sung, and that melody comes to mind, and, and it's very useful in our memory, calling it to memory. You hear the tune, and the words come to you. It's a heritage, and it's a, it's a precious heritage. Periodic celebrations. The children of Israel had periodic celebrations to remember what God had done. They had feasts at certain times and so forth, gathering to collectively recall and rehearse. And that was a mechanism that God instituted to remember those things that are so important. And we do the same. We have, of course, we have special meetings periodically. We have camp meeting. We have our ordinance services quarterly. And... Each time we do, we hear the scriptures read that says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death till he come. Reminding us, uh, as often as you do it, you're recalling, you're remembering. So crucial as to how. So tonight, the Azusa revival, we're basically rehearsing. It's an oral uh, mechanism looking back at what happened. 
and some of you are, are more familiar with the history than I am. I'm, I'm certain of that. Uh, but as I uh, rehearsed it and, and looked through it, uh, some things stood out to me. This occurred uh, right about the dawn of the 20th century, and hearts were hungry. It, it's, it's kind of a marvel that so many centuries went by with seemingly a lull in, in a hunger uh, in seeking God, and that, of course, is not universal. There, there was always a church. There were always people that, that uh, were hungry for God. We know, unfortunately, world history, there were many abuses in that endeavor, but it seemed like centuries had gone by. But there, there seemingly was a, a hunger, and the Lord, in his way, his timetable, who can know it, knew the time and the place uh, for this to, to occur. And about the turn of the century, there was growing interest in the the experience of the infilling of the Holy Spirit as received at Pentecost with the evidence of speaking in tongues. This was predominantly in, in, in holiness organizations, holiness groups of people who had experienced justification by faith and a second work of grace, sanctification, entire sanctification, and they generally assumed that they re- received the infilling of the Holy Spirit when they were sanctified. But this hunger was growing, and, and Bible students were studying the Scriptures and began to feel strongly that, that there was something more. There was more of an infilling available, just as on the day of Pentecost, with the witness given. And they, they referred back, we're familiar with the prophecy in the book of Joel referring to that. And I'll read Joel 2.23, which was a, a key verse, an interesting little glimpse in, in this prophetic book that, that they picked up on. And that verse I'm sure you're familiar with, Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will c- cause to come down uh, for you, the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. Interesting note, it says it will come down in the first month. And the first month in the Jewish calendar um, is equivalent to April on our calendar. And that outpouring in its significance occurred in April of 1906. The the prophet could not have known, of course, what he was penning, but the Holy Ghost was working then, giving him words to write down, words that would come come to pass centuries later. And and Bible Bible students were examining those prophecies, and and the the work of Pentecost is given in Acts chapter two, the witness, and became more and more convinced that surely God had this outpouring available for hungry hearts. And 
some started to receive it. They began to study it. They began to teach it. And one name that is notable in that endeavor is a gentleman named Charles Parham. He had a a Bible school in Topeka, Kansas. And uh, actually on New Year's Day of 1901, he received the infilling of the Holy Spirit with with the witness of of, uh, tongues. Um, And others began to here and there began to experience that. He did some traveling uh, up to the Midwest and and found receptive audiences here and there, and and people here and there began to receive the experience. Clearly, the evidence was there that that this was of God, that this was indeed uh, a true Bible doctrine. He ultimately wound up in um, Houston, Texas, actually because of health concerns in 1905 um, and was teaching on the baptism of the Holy Ghost there. And a young uh, African-American preacher actually was son of uh, former slaves, uh, William Seymour. And that is the name most familiar with people with the Azusa revival because he is the one that, that basically started that endeavor. He was very interested, and, of course, uh, our our nation has experienced sad chapters of uh, discrimination and racism and so forth. That was very prevalent. Texas at that time was still a state where segregation uh, was basically the common element. It was just commonly accepted. William Seymour was hungry for this instruction, and Charles Parham realized that. So he left the door ajar and allowed William Seymour to sit there in the doorway and listen in from outside to glean this instruction uh, that about the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And he became very convinced of that, and he too began to do some traveling. He traveled up the Midwest a little bit, and ultimately was invited to come and uh, to Los Angeles and and preach to um, an African American holiness congregation there. So he ac- accepted the invitation and and arrived uh, in Los Angeles and spoke one Sunday morning on Acts chapter two, how the Holy Ghost was given with the uh, evidence of uh, speaking in tongues. After the service, a very gracious one of the congregation, a Brother Lee, and we actually have several gracious Brother Lees in our organization, um, invited him to his home for lunch, and um, they went back to the afternoon meeting, and the door was locked. And he was banned uh, from further entry. They said he was preaching a false doctrine. Brother Lee basically concurred with that, and now he had something of a dilemma. William Seymour had little resources. He had been invited out here, no place to stay, no place to go. So Brother Lee hosted him in his home, and over the next few days, as they prayed and studied God's word, Brother Lee um, observed a man that was by all accounts, extremely humble and extremely prayerful. He prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. 
we hear sometimes of spending quality time, but sometimes it takes quantity time. And William Seymour was a man of, of quantity time of prayer. And Brother Lee soon became convinced that, yes, this doctrine was of God. A nearby Baptist neighbor, uh, Mrs. Asbury, invited them to come and hold cottage meetings in her home on Bonnie Bray Street. That is familiar to you. Uh, so they began to hold cottage meetings and prayer meetings there in her home. And uh, Brother Seymour suggested uh, a 10-day tarrying session, much like they tarried uh, in the upper room uh, for the outpouring of Pentecost, which probably essentially, I mean, they would have other responsibilities and so forth. They would come and go, but they would set themselves as much as possible to be in prayer and uh, seeking, meditating, seeking the Lord at that location to the extent they can, I'm sure. At the end of that 10-day period, which was April 9th, 1906, um, Brother Lee and William Seymour went over to the house on Bonnie Bray Street. Six people were praying there. And as he entered the room, the Holy Spirit witness came down on Brother Lee, and he refilled, received the infilling of the Holy Spirit. One by one, each of the six that were there praying were filled and received the witness of the Holy Spirit. You can imagine word traveled fast. They're there praying. They're, others are going and telling others, come back. Uh, others, no doubt that have been there, come the Holy Spirit is visiting his people, and, and the people came. They came in growing numbers very quickly, curiosity seekers. And within, uh, basically, it was just an ongoing prayer meeting. People, of course, had to come and go, but people came. They were Souls were saved. There were miraculous healings. And before long, they were crowded, and the porch began to collapse. They realized... They, they just absolutely needed larger quarters. And within just a couple of days, secured the mission there on Azusa Street. One little interesting note, the name Azusa is derived uh, from an Inuit word meaning blessed miracle. And what a blessed miracle occurred there. By April 14th, they held their first meeting there. It would have been an abandoned Methodist church. It had been used more recently as a stable. So there was clearing out to do, and they got planks and put on nail kegs for benches, and the people came. The people prayed. The people heard the gospel story. The Holy Spirit was poured out on hungry hearts. Souls were saved. Miraculous accounts of, of divine healing um, and, of course, there were naysayers, there were scoffers that came, and some of them did not leave as they came. I, I, I read of one um, Filipino uh, minister that felt this was fanaticism and, and came with a, to, you might say, with a critical uh, intent, and as he came in, uh, a woman started praying right by him in a very, um, uh, I guess, obscure Filipino dialect that he was familiar with. He heard it. He understood it. His skepticism vanished. 
Before long, another comes and prays with him in another Filipino dialect. Before he left, he had been filled and received the witness of the Holy Spirit. Sister Crawford, Sister Florence Crawford, the founder of our work, we're familiar with her testimony. She had been miraculously called to be saved uh, prior to being acquainted uh, with this. Uh, but God had called her out of an atheist home and very uh, uh, miraculously had called her uh, to salvation, and she was hungry for God. She learned of sanctification, and she was hungry for sanctification, and she prayed for it, and some counselor that, you've got it. You know, you prayed, you asked, you've got it, but she was not satisfied. She didn't have the witness. She heard about the revival at Azusa Street very soon after it began, and so she went to investigate, and she was a woman of high society, and in her testimony, she said she may have been a little concerned about who saw her go to this humble place, but she didn't care at all who saw her come out because the Lord spoke mildly to her heart, and, and very soon she received a, a sure witness of sanctification. And three days later, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, and, and we know her testimony, she spoke in Chinese. A Chinese man there said, white Chinese woman, uh, heard what she was saying. So um, God was working mightily. Um, Sister Florence felt a very strong uh, desire to publish, to get the word out, and they very soon began publishing a, um, uh, a small newspaper format just relating what had occurred. And we have those materials in our archives. You can go on the website and find those in the library there. Um, the the efforts of uh, predominantly Sister Florence Crawford and, and uh, Sister Clara Lum, and that's her testimony is in our handout. Uh, and she was... Um, by all accounts, a, a skillful editor. Uh, they began compiling and publishing this news to get it out um, and, and try to get it spread abroad, and, and, and quite successfully. Um, Sister Crawford felt compelled to carry the news, uh, so after a time, she traveled up here to the Northwest, uh, a few stops, I believe, maybe in Salem, Seattle, she uh, took a trip out to the Midwest because there had been a work, of course, started out there where people were hungry for this experience. And uh, one, one interesting aspect uh, there at the mission on Azusa Street, very humble surroundings, uh, and uh, initially largely in African-American congregations, and ra racism, of course, was very rampant then, but one writer said the color line uh, was washed away in the blood of Jesus. And and truly, that was something that, that all of them recognized, the class distinction of society or wealth or culture or these things that can be so divisive and are so divisive today uh, and should not be um, when the Holy Spirit comes down and does his work. It vanishes. 
and it did there. And Sister Crawford felt uh, very compelled to carry the gospel. She did uh, make some travel to uh, the Midwest to um, carry the message there and then felt compelled uh, by the Lord that Portland, Oregon is where she should uh, establish this work that we're blessed to be a part of, uh, and she did. And you might say the rest is history. A, a, a work was begun there that has flourished over the years um, and remarkably by God's hands. Many works sprung out of the Azusa revival. There are many Pentecostal organizations. Some flourished, uh, some dwindled, um, and some drifted into different interpretations. I'm no expert on other organizations. I discovered I love this organization, and I love it more and more. Um, it, uh, we sing the old time religion. It was good for our fathers. It was good for our mothers. It just suits me. That's certainly the way I feel about it. So that history occurred in 1906. We rehearse, we remember. Why? Certainly we're instructed to in God's word, the children of Israel instructed to. Our key verse is instruction uh, to remember uh, what God has done. Um, our, our text in, in 2 Timothy, I won't take the time to read it, but uh, you're familiar with it. Paul called to remembrance Timothy's heritage, his grandmother and his mother, uh, and he challenged Timothy to remember the gift that was given you, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he said, stir up that gift, uh, a way of, of remembering. We live in an interesting era that all these past centuries, they would have never perhaps been able to foresee that is not necessarily a friend of remem remembering we we live in an era of retrieval. Most of you, oh, I didn't bring my phone. <laughs> Probably safer. Most of you have a phone in your pocket. We get used to retrieving information, don't we? So, so why remember it? We can retrieve it so easily. I googled the Azusa Street Revival, and there's a wealth of information that can be at your fingertips. Uh, about that, as I went through some of that information, it became clear to me that some of it appeared to be accurate, some of it did not. Um, and we know that we can't necessarily count on the accuracy of what we retrieve. Um, so that's one reason to remember. But there perhaps a more important reason to remember. A railer and a blasphemer I went around that machine. I took that young man by the shoulder. I turned him around. I asked him, what church do you belong to? He said, I don't belong to any church. I'm just a Christian. Many of you remember that testimony, Brother Chick Beasley, one that knew the work of the Holy Ghost was to convince and convict. I told my friends, I'm under conviction. I think I'm going to get saved. 
We heard that Tuesday night, didn't we? You won't find that in a search engine. We're blessed to hear accounts of what God has done, testimonies. Uh, We've experienced them. Scores of them, hundreds of them, thousands of them. What God has done, most of it you'll never find on a search engine. The songwriter said, if the sky were a scroll, it couldn't contain the whole. Google, you're just a minnow. God's, what God will convey to his people is far more than can be electronically retrieved. It's of the spirit, it's of our heart, it's our heritage. And we're encouraged, remember what God has done. And we want to do just that. And there's a reason for that. We know in in Hebrews it says to give the more earnest heed to the things you've heard, lest at any time you should let them slip. What happens if you don't rehearse and keep that memory alive? It slips. We we know that that occurs. And like I said, Paul encouraged Timothy, hold fast to that which you've heard. I saw something uh, a short time ago that caught my eye. It would have caught your eye, and I'll ask George to change to a different picture here because I snapped a picture with my trusty cell phone. That is uh, a counter at a Taco Bell. It says, I am reclaimed wood from Azusa, California. That caught my eye. In fact, I texted that picture to my sisters. It would catch your eye too. Why? Azusa, California. We have a heritage from Azusa, California. The interesting thing is most people that would come in and look at at that would have no idea What's Azusa, California? Where's Azusa, California? They would look at that and say, oh, wow, you reclaimed wood. They're saving the planet. In our community, sadly, there seems to be more interest in saving the planet. What they don't know is the creator of the planet already declared that there's a predetermined Finite existence of the planet. There's not enough boards to reclaim in California to save the planet. But there's a far greater value than saving the planet. Our heritage from Azusa. My own grandfather came here in 1921. He heard about this organization. And uh, he came for a weekend to to take in the services uh, from where they lived up in northwestern Oregon or Washington. And he was introduced to Sister Crawford uh, after the first meeting, a Friday night meeting he attended. And she asked him what he thought. And he said, there's enough power here to save the world. That's the legacy of Azusa, not reclaimed wood. That's our heritage, Uh, a heritage to remember, a heritage to treasure. Today, The Holy Ghost is still working as he was working on the day of Pentecost, as he was working in Azusa Street, 
we can think back at, at times of revival, wonderful revivals in our organization. And, and we have folks sitting here that remember revivals in 1948. I don't remember that. I remember revivals in 1968. And I cherish that. I have a personal link to those times. A um, few weeks back, the choir sang, I remember the time I can take you to the place where the Lord saved me by his wonderful grace. I can do that. You can do that. My place, my time, was a Sunday night in February of 1962 over at the end of the platform in the tabernacle where the Lord saved a 10-year-old boy. A few years later, on the front row of the chairs in the tabernacle there where I was sanctified, May of 1968, when we had a, a wonderful time of revival, I re- received the impelling of the Holy Spirit. That's a precious memory. That's a heritage. We think back you know, more recently, different times of revival. We love revival. There's a, an excitement and exuberance in times of revival, but the Lord knows that excitement and exuberance will not get us all the way to earth to glory. There is a time where we walk by faith, where we reach out and seek the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the intercession of the Holy Spirit. And yes, we love the the times of revival and we pray for revival, but the Holy Spirit works in all his various forms day by day, in the life of each hungry heart. He's done it for us in the past. He does it for us now. He'll do it for us tonight. As the Lord tarries, he'll continue doing it. He's faithful to do it. We, You have the song there that we sing often in camp meeting, uh, Pentecostal Power. And I didn't realize we'd be blessed to have the words here for us, so... Uh, in closing, we'll ask Brother Gary to lead us in the first and, and last verses of that, and we'll have a time of prayer. But the chorus, the Pentecostal power, thy floodgates of blessing on us throw open wide. The Holy Ghost can open floodgates of blessing. He can open it on my heart, on your heart. He can open floodgates tonight. He can move. He can work all his offices that he does so wonderfully uh, in our hearts and lives. So we'll ask Brother Gary to lead us in the first and last verse of that, and, and we'll have a time of prayer. <laughs>